Let's pray together. Father, I pray that your grace would work in our hearts this morning the way it worked in the heart of the Lord Jesus, who did not want to drink the cup, and yet came to the place where he saw that you were going to bring good. You were going to work all things together for good so that he could, for the joy set before him, endure the cross, spurning its shame. And Lord, I pray that you would cause your grace to do for us what it did in the heart of the Apostle Paul, who saw the mystery of your plan a plan that was not what his heart desired. But Lord, he embraced that plan and threw himself into it out of love for you and out of love for your people. Lord, do that work in us. Transform us, we pray, by the power of your word, by the power of the spirit, and cause us to be completely on board with what you are doing, with your cause, Help us to make disciples of Jesus and help us to rejoice in you and give thanks to you and to pursue godliness in our every situation. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I'd like for you to think with me this morning as we look at Romans 11, and we'll be, we'll be looking at Romans 11, verses 11 through 24, and I'd like for you to think as you turn there of where Paul started and where he wound up. Paul tells us that he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He tells us that he was advancing in Judaism beyond his contemporaries. He tells us that he was a Pharisee. And I think that we can assume that in his Pharisaism, there was probably some distaste for Gentiles. And, and I think you can see this in places like Galatians 2 when, when Peter, for instance, doesn't even want to eat with Gentiles. I mean, I, I think that it's probably the case that Jews thought that Gentiles were disgusting. They ate all this unclean food. They were, they were unclean people. They, they, they ate blood. They, they ate meat with blood in it. They were... They were perverse, they were disgusting, they were unclean, they smelled bad, didn't want to be around them. Probably the way that Jews like Paul thought about Gentiles. And we've read here, as we've been looking at Romans, how, how Paul's heart's desire and prayer to God for his Jewish kinsmen, according to the flesh, was that they love Jesus. And so I think that probably what Paul wanted was a mass Jewish turning to Jesus. Paul wanted a revival of Jews and an awakening among Jews so that they would embrace Jesus as their Messiah, as he was. And instead, what Paul got to do was leave the synagogue when the Jews drove him out 
and go preach to those disgusting Gentiles. And then welcome those Gentiles into the church as believers in Jesus while all his beloved Jewish kinsmen according to the flesh were rejecting the Lord Jesus. And here's, here's what I think is so stunning about this. Paul came to a place where I don't think he evidences any disgust for the Gentiles. Rather, there is nothing but a loving embrace of these people as he calls them to faith, as he welcomes them into repentance. So what you see in the Apostle Paul, if there was, and I'm, I suspect that there was probably some racism, probably some uh, feeling of superiority as a Jew, that his ways were better, his heritage was better, his culture was better, everything about being a Jew was better, and you really don't like those people. And all of that is transcended and overcome by the power of the gospel. And Paul, Paul, we've seen how Paul has told us in Romans 9, uh, verse, verse 2, that he had great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart because his Jewish kinsmen, according to the flesh, were not believing in Jesus. And then we've walked with him as he's worked through his answer to the question, what about the Jews? Has, has the love of God in Christ not been cut off from the Jews? And he's, he's explained how it's not a failure of God's promise. God always chose a remnant, and that remnant always believes. And then he comes to Romans chapter 11, and, and we've seen how he, he's detailed the elect who, who have trusted in Jesus. And then he's also talked about the, the rest of the nation of Israel that was not elect, that was not believing. And then he comes to 11.11. And, and his point here in 11, 11 through 16 is going to be that the people of Israel actually have a future. But in this, what he's going to do... What, what I want you to feel here is Paul's pain and anguish, that things are not the way he wants them to be, and then the way that he comes to understand this mysterious plan of God. And what he does is he embraces that plan of God, and he throws himself into that plan of God fully and completely. And here, I think he's setting an, exa an example for us, because every one of us can relate to the Apostle Paul. Every one of us has probably, I think, if you're like me, you have a way that you want things to go. You have, you have a, an agenda, you have goals, you have things that you'd like to see develop. And every one of us is going to run up in this life against this problem that we don't get what we want. And as we run up against this problem, if we're believers and if we submit ourselves to the scriptures, we're going to see, oh, God has this other mysterious plan. And then we, we're faced with a choice. Am I going to do like Paul and embrace God's plan and throw myself into it? So let, let's look at this and, and hopefully you'll see what, what I mean here. Look at Romans 11, verse 11. He's just, he's just talked in, in 11, 7 through 10 about the rest. If you look at 11, 7, he says, Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it. Those God chose. They believed and they obtained righteousness, the rest of the nation was hardened. And then he quotes these two Old Testament passages that, that speak to how, several Old Testament passages actually, that speak to how this was prophesied, the unbelief of Israel was prophesied. And then look at what he says in 11.11. 11. 
So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? And the idea is, in their rejection of the gospel, in their rejection of Jesus, have they closed the door? Have they fallen never again to rise? Is it, is it completely and fully and finally over for the Jews? And his answer in 11.11 is meganoita, by no means. May it never be. It's like he's saying, don't even let that thought enter your mind. That, that's not a possibility. That's not the way things have gone. And then here's his explanation. Here's, here's Paul's insight into this mysterious plan of God in the rest of verse 11. Rather, through their trespass, meaning their rejection of Jesus, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. And, and John just read about this. We read in Acts 13 about how Paul is preaching the gospel to these Jewish people in the synagogue. And initially, they're very excited about this. But then they see the Gentiles flocking to the gospel. And, and that Jewish prejudice that I was assuming earlier, and I think it's a fair assumption that Paul probably felt, seems to start working on those Jews. They see these Gentiles, and they don't like this. They don't want those Gentiles enjoying these benefits. And so they start objecting to Paul. They start rejecting his message. And Paul says, okay, uh, since you reject the gospel, I will go to the Gentiles. And, and I mean, think about, th if, you, if, if we can get our heads into how Paul would have felt about this, his, his brothers, his sisters, his mother, his father, his uncles, his aunts, his nieces and nephews, the people that he went to school with, all these people that he loved dearly from his circle of life, they're rejecting the gospel. And, he's, and instead of them, these Gentiles are believing it. And what Paul does is he embraces it. He embraces it. Through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. And here we see how I think the pieces came together in Paul's thinking and what brought him around to see that this was God's plan and to embrace this as God's plan. Because what he's alluding to is the passage that Zach read earlier about how uh, in Deuteronomy 32, God told Israel, if, if, if you make me jealous with what is no, no God, I will make you jealous, Deuteronomy 32, 21, with what is no people. So God is telling Israel, if you reject my plan, my program, and, and my Messiah, I, I will grant those things to what is not even a nation, and they will enjoy the benefits that belong to you. Through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. And then look at, look at what he says in verse 12. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world. So just to be clear here, Paul is saying, if the Jewish rejection of the gospel, the, the Jesus as the Messiah, that's what the Jews have rejected. If that means riches for the world, meaning if by their refusal to accept Jesus as the Messiah... All these Gentiles get to believe in Jesus as Messiah and come into the church. And if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now look at what Paul is assuming here. Paul is assuming that the Jews will be fully included one day. Why does he make that assumption? 
Well, because the Old Testament says they will be. Psalm 94, 14, God has not rejected his people. And God will not reject his people. And, and I think this is fundamental for us because if the Old Testament, if God in the Old Testament says, I am not fully and finally ultimately going to give over the people of Israel, and then he does, how can we trust him not to reject us? So if we're going to trust him not to reject us, he has to be faithful. If he's going to be faithful in the New Covenant, he has to have been faithful in the Old Covenant. You see the logic? And Paul is assuming he is going to fully include Israel one day. And if, if their failure has resulted in good things, how much better will their inclusion into God's blessing be? That's, that's the, the way his argument goes. He's going to return to this in a couple of verses. But first, he's going to address the Gentiles directly. And here again, I think we see the remarkable transformation in the heart of the Apostle Paul. So I, I want to I belabor this because I, I hope that we can feel this. This is a man who loved his people. He loved his heritage. He loved the scriptures even before Jesus transformed him on the road to Damascus. That's why he was so committed to trying to stamp out Christianity. He was trying to follow God, and he was committed to the Jewish people. Look at what he says here in verse 13. Now I am speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. Do you see how he has fully embraced his role? This is the guy who described himself as a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee, the strictest sect. He was going after Judaism all, all in, all for it. And now he's saying, okay, that was my plan. And then God showed me he's got this other plan. I'm all in. I'll be the apostle to the Gentiles on God's plan. And, and, and yet... He hasn't let go of love for his people. Look at what he says here. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry, verse 14, in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. There's a, there's a slight superficial uh, thing that, we, that I want to deal with here before we talk more about this. And that is, you may have noticed as John read Acts 13, that the Jews actually felt jealousy in response to the Gentiles coming in. But that's not the kind of jealousy that he's talking about here, right? Even in English, the same word can have different senses, okay? So uh, God is described in the Bible as a jealous God. That's not the kind of jealousy that the Jews were feeling about the gospel in Acts 13. In Acts 13, the kind of jealousy they were feeling was, this is wrong and we want to stamp it out. And, and, and we don't like those people. That's, that's not the kind of jealousy that God feels. The kind of jealousy that God feels is, I want what's good for you so passionately that it, it upsets me when you take what is not good for you in place of me, which is ultimately what's good for you. And, and the kind of jealousy that Paul wants the Jews to feel is not the kind of jealousy that we see in Acts 13, which is, uh, we hate the gospel and we want to oppose it and stamp it out. Rather, what he wants them to feel is, the gospel and Jesus, this is the fulfillment of the old covenant promises, promises that were made to us, blessings that belong to us. And those people, it's like, it's like that garden was built for us and those other people are enjoying it. That's our garden. So we want to get in, not we want to burn it down. So 
So Paul wants the Jews to recognize that the blessings that God has promised to them are being enjoyed by others, and then he wants them to want in on those blessings by turning away from their rejection of Jesus and embracing him completely. So Paul sees that there's a way for his desire and God's plan to come together. And that is for him to go all in on being the apostle to the Gentiles and then magnifying that ministry so that the gospel and the blessings that God gives will look so good that his Jewish contemporaries, whom he loves, will want in on it. So I want to make two points of application here for us. Um, the first point of application is we must, if, if we're going to have satisfaction and joy in life, we must embrace God's plan. You are not going to get your way over God's way. <laughs> there is one sovereign will in the universe, and it's not any of ours. So, so we have to come to a place, every one of us human beings has to come to a place where we say, God's in control, God's sovereign, he's Lord, and whatever his plan is, that's what I'm going to embrace. And then we have to throw ourselves all in, into that plan. And, and what we want is we want our desires and our, and our hopes and our goals all to, to line up with God's ultimate plan. And then we want to work for our goals in co coordination with his goals. And that's what Paul is modeling for us here. That's my first application for you. Embrace God's plan and throw yourself into it. Second point of application here. Notice how in verse 14 there he says, in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. We, we must be people who are so enjoying God's goodness to us that other people see it and desire it. That, you know, Paul is not saying something like here like... Um, just as an illustration, last night we had watermelon at uh, dinner, and um, I ate a lot of watermelon <laughs> after the meal. And my daughter comes, and she sits on my lap, and she, she sees my plate, and there are all these watermelon rinds. And she's like, you like watermelon? Or, you know, she made some comment about how much watermelon I'd eaten. That's the way it needs to be for us as we savor God's goodness, as we savor God's promises, as we savor the blessings of being part of this body. Other people need to be able to see how we enjoy this. And, and then, I mean, you know, what did Evie do? She started eating watermelon. She's like, you ate a lot of watermelon. And she starts getting pieces of watermelon. And this is the way it needs to work for us. We... we we need to so enjoy God's goodness to us that other people are like, that looks good. I'd like to have some of that. You seem content and joyful and satisfied and, and, and able to deal with things. I'd like to have some of this. That, this is what Paul is describing. This is, what the, this is the way the gospel must work in us. And only the Holy Spirit can bring this about, ultimately, because we're all... We're all failures. We are. And, and, and none of us can, can try hard enough and make this happen in our souls. So this has got to be the work of God in us. But there's a divine sovereignty part and there's a human responsibility part. And the human responsibility part includes things like you ought to come to church, you ought to plug yourself into the life of the church, 
and you ought to pursue your spiritual disciplines. You ought to read Scripture, memorize Scripture, spend time in prayer, talk to other believers about these things. And if, you're, if, if the Lord is drawing you into this, and you begin to do this, I think you'll begin to experience how good that watermelon tastes. Look at verse 15, where Paul returns to the kinds of things that he was saying back in verses 11 and 12. He says, for if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world. So what's happened is, Jesus has come, the Jews have rejected him, and he got crucified. And then the Jewish apostles started saying, actually, he was raised from the dead, he's the Messiah. And they rejected them too. So the Jews have completely, largely, there's a remnant, but the Jews have largely rejected the gospel. And then the Gentiles have begun to believe it, and they've been reconciled to God. That's what Paul is describing here. If their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Notice how verse 15 parallels verse 12. Uh, their, Their trespass means riches. Their Failure means riches, and I think this is riches, the the enjoyment of the gospel. Now, their rejection and and their means reconciliation, and then so also back in verse uh, 12, uh, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Well, here he answers the question in verse 15. What will their acceptance, that's another way to describe their full inclusion, what will their acceptance mean but life? From the dead. Paul is talking about the resurrection of the dead. Paul is talking about that great day when all things will be made new, when our bodies will be healed, we will be raised from the dead to enjoy God's goodness forever. Uh, Can't help but think about, uh, I may have mentioned this last week, I don't recall, but. Vander, the University of Vanderbilt just won the College World Series, and um, uh, when, right, right as that was happening, I read a story about uh, a kid who would have been a senior on that baseball team, but his freshman year, this is a kid who, his freshman year, he threw a baseball over 100 miles an hour, so he, would have, he was a pitcher on, that, on the University of Vanderbilt's baseball team, and right before they went into the, the uh, regional tournament, his freshman year to try to win their way to Omaha uh, that year, four years ago, uh, he and two other buddies, two other pitchers from the baseball team, they went swimming. And this kid decides that he's going to swim across the lake that they're in. And he gets halfway out there and he starts calling for help. And his buddies think he's joking. And one of them actually swam out to him and, and like dr- started dragging him in, but he still thought he was joking. And so he lets go of him and, and just swims himself, but then he turns around and, and the kid's gone. And they, they found his body under 25 feet of water, and he died. And it just devastated the team, and, and they, they totally fell apart. They were quickly eliminated from the tournament that year. And, and the coach of that team, who's still the coach of that team, actually thought, maybe I'm just done with baseball but I'm, I don't know how I can go back to Vanderbilt and continue to coach there. And the way that they began to pursue healing was they invited the parents of this kid basically into the program. And the, the, this kid's parents, um, they, they began to travel with the team. They, they went to Omaha this year with the team. The, and, and this guy's dad, you know, he was, he was as happy as anybody about the fact that they won the College World Series this year. 
And I don't know, that the article did not go into what their faith is, what their perspective is. But, but we can all say this, you know, as great as it is for them to win the College World Series, their son is still dead. And if they don't have a hope that goes beyond death, if they don't have a hope that says there is something to live for beyond this life, and there's a time coming when the worst things that can happen to parents, like losing a child, will be reversed and the child will be raised. They don't have a hope that satisfies. Look at what Paul says here. What will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Paul is saying there is a hope. There's a joy. There's a gladness. There's, there's a renewal that will reverse the worst things that can happen. So this is, this is Paul's answer to these questions that arise. And, and, and he's going to go on arguing that, that actually one day the Jews are going to experience this full inclusion of verse 12 and this acceptance of verse 15. Look at what he says next in verse 16. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. In the Old Testament, in um, Numbers 15, verses 18 through 21, you can read about how Israel was commanded that when they harvested their wheat and when they began to make their bread, what they were supposed to do is dedicate the first fruits of that to the Lord. And it was, it was kind of a way of saying, Lord, we're going to give you the first things that come to us, trusting that you're going to give us the rest of the harvest and trusting that really everything belongs to you. And, and what Paul is saying here is if the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. In, in the analogy that he's drawing, what he's saying is something like this. If Abraham and the Old Testament remnant is holy, all Israel is holy. And, and these believers, Abraham, Isaiah, Elijah, David, if these believers, if they belong to God, they're the root well, the branches that descend from them, they also are going to belong to God. And, and so Paul, what, what he's arguing here is there is a day when Israel will be renewed, when my desires for their mass conversion, for their renewal, for their revival will be realized. You know, it's, it's remarkable. Um, there, there are... Well, in 1939, in 1939, the Jewish population of the world is estimated to have been 17 million. And, um, you know, you set that next to um, what's the population of the Hittites or the Perizzites or the Girgashites. I mean, have you ever talked to any, of, any representatives of any of those people? They're all gone. And the Jewish people have been preserved down to this day um, horrifically. The Jewish population of the world in 1945 was down to 11 million. Six million wiped out between 1939 and 1945. Um, today, the, the population of, of Jewish people worldwide is estimated at 14.5 million. Um, there are a lot of Jews in the world. Let me invite you to consider a mass conversion. Can you imagine the glory of the mass conversion of the people of Israel? That would be a fabulous day 
for, let's just say, let's just, let's just say 14 million people. I don't know. I don't know what it's going to look like when Jesus returns, but I think this passage is, is teaching that on the day that Christ returns, uh, the living Jews of the world will see Jesus and realize he's the Messiah, and they'll repent of their rejection of him, and they will put their faith and hope in him, and they'll be saved by grace through faith. Can you imagine the glory of seeing millions upon millions of Jewish people trusting Christ on the day of the return of Jesus? So what Paul, I think what Paul's doing in this passage is explaining how what causes him, he describes in chapter 9, verse 2, great sorrow and unceasing anguish, this is actually something that's being used by God for good. It's almost like Paul is saying, here, let me give you an illustration in my own life and heart of Romans 8, 28. He works all things together for good. Even, even the Jewish rejection of Jesus, God is working this for good as the Gentiles are being brought in and, and as a buildup to this glorious turning of the Jews to Christ. And then Paul is giving us his, himself as an example of someone who's throwing himself into this plan that he has discerned. This, this made me think of, of um, this song that Bob Coughlin wrote called The Glory of the Cross. The first verse says, What wisdom once devised the plan where all our sin and pride was placed upon the perfect Lamb who suffered, bled, and died. The wisdom of a sovereign God whose greatness will be shown when those who crucified your son rejoice around your throne. Uh, that, that idea, the idea that, that one day even people whose sins, like us, put Christ on the cross, we will rejoice around the throne of God, takes us right into this next section where Paul is going to address Gentile attitudes toward the Jewish people. And his basic message here is there's no grounds for Gentiles to boast over the Jews. That's what he's, what he's saying here. So in 11, 11 through 16, he's argued Israel has a future. In 11, 17 through 21, he's going to say, you Gentiles, there's no room for boasting. So look with me at 11, 17 through 21. No room for Gentile boasting. Verse 17. But if some of the branches were broken off, so Jewish people have rejected Jesus, and this is, this is almost like a Pauline interpretation of the Lord Jesus saying to his Jewish contemporaries, since you reject God's plan, the kingdom has been taken away from you and given to others. He says, he says here in verse 17, if some of the branches were broken off and you, you Gentiles, although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among the others... So he's talked about branches at the end of verse 16, and he's going to stay with that idea all through verse, verse 24. And the idea is that the people of Israel, the Jewish people, are this cultivated olive tree, and then Gentiles are these wild olive trees. And Jill and I have actually, we've, we've had the opportunity to travel to Israel, and you can actually see places where they will, either a branch will break off or they'll chop a branch off, and they'll, I don't know how they pull this off, but they graft in branches into this other olive tree. You can actually see the examples of this. If you Google it, you'll find pictures of it. And, and Paul is using that 
um, practice of what people do with trees to talk about what God has done with the Gentiles. So, so the root of the tree is the Jewish patriarchs. The trunk of the tree is all the old covenant heritage. And now the branches are these Gentiles because the Jews have rejected Jesus. He says, if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, verse 18, do not be arrogant toward the branches. He's saying there should be no Gentile arrogance toward Jewish people. And I think Paul, for Paul, as a Jew, he probably would have been particularly sensitive to any kind of Gentile disregard for, dismissal of, feeling of superiority toward his Jewish kinsmen according to the flesh. There is a horrific history of Christian anti-Semitism. I don't know how it's justified. I don't understand the historical forces that prompted it and resulted in it, but it should have no place in our hearts. That we, anytime Anytime we um, hear or, or even are inclined to say something derogatory about Jewish people, about stereotypes, we need to crucify those impulses. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. Paul, Paul, Paul equips us to oppose this arrogance. He says, if you are, if you recognize in your heart that you feel this some kind of superiority toward the Jews... If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. It's like he's saying, you need to think about the Old Testament. You need to think about the fact that God chose Abraham and gave all these promises to the Jewish people. And you're not prompting those promises. You're not sustaining those promises. Those promises are sustaining you. And then, and then he addresses a counter-argument, verse 19. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I may be grafted in. And, and I suspect that what would prompt this kind of attitude is a, a feeling of, well, they rejected the gospel. They're getting what they deserve. They reject, I, re, I accepted the gospel. And Paul answers this. He says, that's true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. Now, think with me here about why faith cannot boast or be arrogant. The reason that faith, if you're standing fast through faith, the reason that you can't boast or or live out any arrogance toward other people is because what we trust in is not ourselves, but God. And if we understand this, this idea of God's sovereign purpose in election, we recognize ultimately it wasn't due to a choice that I made. This was God's mercy being extended to me. That's why I'm a believer. So pride and arrogance are fundamentally unloving toward other people. And and pride is self-regarding. You're congratulating yourself because of what you have accomplished. And Paul is saying, if you stand fast through faith, the opposite attitude of that is, well, I did this, so I've got reason for boast. I've got reason for boasting. And he says, don't become proud. Don't start thinking that way. But fear, verse 21, for if God did not spare the natural branches, the Jews, 
when they moved away from faith into pride, into a sense of racial superiority, a sense of cultural superiority. They moved into that, and it resulted in them rejecting the Messiah because they were not trusting, they were not believing, they were not understanding the Scriptures. And if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will He spare you. So this is remarkable, I think, because this is the Paul who's been teaching the doctrine of election, right? All through this passage, those whom he, he uh, uh, how's it go in Romans 8? My, my brain is failing on me here. He says in Romans uh, 8, um, 28, those who are called according to his purpose, 29, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed. And then he, and then he speaks about how, how those whom he predestined in verse 30, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. So God has done these things. And yet we don't know who they are. The only way that we know that we're among the the foreknown and predestined and called and justified is standing fast through faith. Divine sovereignty, human responsibility. You can't assume. If you start assuming, oh, I'm among the elect. I've got reason for boasting. Wouldn't God want to choose me? Well, all of a sudden your attitude is not at all faith because you're proud and self-regarding. And what God did with the chosen people of Israel is he broke off those branches. He didn't spare those natural branches. He's not going to spare you if you slip into that attitude. So we don't know who the elect are, but the elect are going to continue to stand fast in faith. And the evidence that you're among the elect is that you stand fast in faith. Look at verse 22. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen. What is falling here? Rejecting Jesus. Starting into an attitude of arrogance and pride toward other people. Starting to feel like, Naturally, I would be chosen. I deserved this. I earned this. I accomplished this. Anything like that. You're, it's like you're teetering, and you can fall. And it, that's going to that's gonna result in God's severity. But God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. What, is, what does it look like to continue in his kindness? It looks like continuing to remember, I'm an object of mercy. God... God, I didn't deserve this. I didn't earn this. I wasn't looking for it. I wasn't asking for it. It would not have arisen in my heart to think that there was anything so good as knowing God. And God broke in to my consciousness and revealed himself to me. And it was his mercy that brought me to faith, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And now Paul, in verses 22, uh, in, sorry, verses 23 and 24, he's going to return to this idea that the Jews one day can be saved. But before we leave verse 22, let me just say, the application here I think is clear, isn't it? We need to cultivate hearts of humble faith as opposed to hearts of proud self-reliance. Those are clear distinctions, aren't they? Humble faith stands opposite from proud self-reliance. You trust God Humility is going to be a natural outflow of that. Look at verse 23. And even they, the natural branches, the Jewish people, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. How does Paul know this? God saved him. It's like Paul is saying, look, if God can save me, God can save anybody. And if we had known Paul, if we had been alive in his day we would have been totally and completely in agreement with that. Verse 24, 
For if you, you Gentiles, were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted in contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? We're almost out of time. Let me just, let me just um, go straight to application here. Um, if you're here and you're not a believer, this passage calls you to believe. If you're here today and you are not identifying as a Christian, Paul is saying to you, there's a way for you to experience the kindness of God. And that way is to turn away from your rejection of Jesus as the Messiah, to recognize that, yes, it was shameful for him to be crucified, but God raised him from the dead and thereby accomplished salvation. Salvation that you can experience if you'll put your faith and hope in him. So, and then if you're here today and you're a believer, I would say, don't give up on anybody. Don't think that anybody is beyond the power of God to graft them back in. I mean, what Paul is describing here, you know, if you're, if you're going to do this grafting thing, you've got to have a living branch. Paul is describing dead branches that have been broken off, that have been grafted back in and made alive again because God can raise the dead. God can raise the dead. So nobody is beyond the reach of the gospel. God did the miracle. So really, whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, the call here is to believe. And then again, I would just go back to, you know, I, I am so blessed to be part of this church. It's such a blessing to know you all. And, and, and in so many ways, all I want to say is excel still more. You're doing great. You, I think, I don't know better people than the people here. I don't know people who live more attractive lives than you guys. And, and so what I want to say is excel still more. Excel still more. Yes, we got ways we can improve. Absolutely. We're doing, you're doing great, though. You're doing great. Excel still more. Live these attractive lives. And, and I think that if you can discern God's plan, and that plan is to build his kingdom through the gospel, if you can discern God's plan, and then you throw yourself into it, whatever that looks like for you, for you, it may look like you devoting yourself to prayer. It may look like you thinking about world missions. It may look like you thinking about um, a, a, a church that may be calling you to serve as their pastor. I don't know what it looks like for you. It may look like you um, being a better servant leader in your home. It may look like you being a better servant to your roommates. I don't know, what it's, but we all have to throw ourselves into this task of taking up the cross and following Jesus. That's what... That's what we're called to. Finally, the faith has a fabulous future. I mean, can you imagine? Can you imagine the heavens breaking open and the Lord Jesus in risen glory returning with such a display of, of awesome power that all living Israelites will see him and recognize that's the Messiah. That's going to that's gonna prompt the worship of heaven. That's going to, we're all going to resonate with the praises that the hallelujahs, that the angelic choruses will be heralding on that day. Let's pray together. Father, would you help us to look to Jesus who for the joy set before him endured the cross. And Lord, 
Perhaps for many here, what they discern of your plan for their lives may feel like a taking up of the cross. Lord, would you help us? Help us to see the way that Paul took up his cross. A cross of getting over his prejudices, his preferences. A a cross of loving people who were not like himself. And Lord, would you give us the same sincere love and joy that you gave to Paul. Lord, cause us to experience the fruits of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we pray. And help us to know how we should throw ourselves in. Lord, we want, as Peter says, to hasten the day when Christ will come. Show us how, Lord. Give us, give us a clear understanding of what, what our part in the Great Commission task is and help us to embrace it and do it. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.